You see, God loves nations with their ethnicity, their diversity, their language, the richness of culture, all of that. God loves that. What God does not love is when a particular nation begins to believe it has a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to its agenda. The reason God opposes that is because this is the very thing that God has promised to his only begotten son. God has promised to his son the right to rule the nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to his agenda. So empire, by their very posture, position themselves to be opposed to God. And this is not a novel theme. This is not a minor theme in scripture. Those, those that are raised in a church that is hosted by a superpower tend to have this screened out, but it's it's absolutely a major theme in the Bible, quite literally from Genesis to Revelation. Oh, praise His name, the High King of Kings. Come, voices. As this year further gets into the season of politics, we are quickly going to enter into discourse. Every single corner of our country will be yelling at each other, and we will begin to use the Bible as a weapon even more so than we do now. There will be U.S. nationalists that use the Bible as a weapon for them. There will be progressive Christians that will use the Bible as a weapon for them. And there is no power in a gospel like that. There is no power built on an ideology of lust, greed, and pride. There is no power in a church that colludes with any administration and pretend that that is the gospel. And so let's reframe it. I had a conversation with Brian Zahn where we talk about America as a superpower, America as an empire, and what that means when the Bible is really written to exiles that live under the oppression of a superpower. What does it mean to re-embrace a vision of what it is to be chosen by our Lord and what that vulnerability comes to show us about ourselves? This conversation will press you, and that's entirely fine. What better topics to talk about than a topic that forces us to look inward, reflect upon ourselves, and really come to grips with what we see in the mirror and whether or not that is Christ-like? Because if we don't look like that, Christ-like, what's the point of being Christian? And so here we go, a conversation with myself and Brian Zahn about postcards from Babylon.
Brian Zahn, thank you so much for coming back onto the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Recently, I've had a very few number of repeat guests, and so you're on the list of less than five people between you, Alexander Shia, and a few other people, and so I'm very happy to have you back on. Thank you, Seth. It's nice of you to have me. I'm glad to be here. A couple things. Uh, I, I follow you on Instagram, and so last night you posted some, uh, I believe, Rolling Stones music. <laughs> and I'm upset that it's only 60 seconds worth of stuff because I was beginning to jam. Yeah. And then it started over. I was really sad about it. Really kind of sad. It made me go and actually stream the whole album. And so, Rolling Stones, if you're listening. It, it, it was Exile on Main Street, which is their best album. I can say that definitively because I'm opinionated like that <laughs> about certain things. Uh, Exile on Main Street also, by the way, is a sermon title in my forthcoming book. See, I just did your segue for you. You like that? Yeah. See, you're a professional speaker. I am not. So we're, we're, we're going to go with that. Before we get there, for those that are unfamiliar with Brian, instead of having him go back through kind of his upbringing, I did that already in episode, I think, nine. So find the Google Go back to the beginning of the feed and uh, listen for the first 10 minutes and then come back here. Well, actually, listen to that whole episode because the end will spawn off until here. Uh, and so going with your segue, what is that forthcoming book? Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile. Mm -hmm. That's the title and the subtitle comes out. You know, if, if you ask me tomorrow, I could give you an exact date. I can give you what I think is the exact date. I think it comes out January 14th. It will be January. And I think it's January 14th, but I don't quite know at this moment. Mm, that's fine. But who's, I think it's January 14th. Who's publishing it? Well, this one I'm bringing out with Spello Press, which is me, which is what I did with Water to Wine. The reason I'm doing that, I had uh, numerous publishers. Uh, let's see, Erdman's wanted it. Fortress Press wanted it, but, you know, having published six times previously with conventional publishers, and, and I'm not saying I won't do that in the future, I probably will, in fact, uh, but they take, an, they take 18 months. I give them a completed manuscript. You can ask the editors that have worked with me. Here's what they say to me. They say, Brian, you're easy money. We don't really have to do much. <laughs> you know, just copy editing and that's it. So I give them a completed manuscript, but it's still eight months hmm. for them to, you know, market and do all that they do. And this book, I just felt a certain urgency, a time pressure in that I felt I was writing to this present moment and I didn't want to wait 18 months for it to come out. Yeah. So it, it's under the name Spello Press, which is also the publisher of one of my books, just one, Water to Wine. But just between you and me, Spello presses me. <laughs> How about that? So I am I am talking with both the publisher, producer, and mind behind at least the entire book. I know that you've spent a lot of time over the last year uh, intentionally getting away and, and honestly getting out of the country. You, you did the, um, uh, what's it called? The Camino. Um, yeah. And so how do you find the time to self-publish and market and figure out printing and all that stuff, a book, and do that while you're disengaged on the Camino? Well, the question is, how do I find time to write? And I just I schedule time. I make time. I don't I don't write in little snatches. I don't like, oh, I've got a free hour. I'll write. I, I block out a day or two or three. And, and I it takes, you know, I write on my writing days and I average advancing a book 
1,600 words per writing day. Now, that means going back and also working on what I've written previously. Mm-hmm. But I can write a book in 40 days doing that. Um, so I don't work too slow. I work fairly quick. As far as what we call self-publishing, really, I got a team of people around me to help. It's really it's really no different than working with a publisher. In fact, if I had to say, and if publishers are listening to me, they're going to hate this. <laughs> I mean, as one who has experience on both sides, it's for me anyway. It wouldn't be true for everyone, I guess. For me, it's probably less work really? bringing it myself than working with a publisher. Well, that's fair. It's say less work for me. And, and maybe you may see more people do this because – I mean, you, you're, you're in control of your own stuff totally. Although I really, I don't let editors push me around anyway. So Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I I mean, I'm going to write what I'm going to write and they're going to have to like it or not. But, and if, and if they don't like it, there's always, there's always your publishing firm to publish it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't have that carrot or that stick. Well, and see, the thing is, unless you're, you know, JK Rowling or somebody, you're pretty much selling your own books anyway. Right. And so there's more and more people saying, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I need this middleman. Yeah. But That's but, but, I'm, but I'm not saying that. I mean, truly, the reason, though, that postcards from Babylon, I mean, the reason I'm doing it myself, if you want to put it that way, is it's going to come out in January. Yeah. You know, this coming year of 2019 instead of June of 2020. Sure. I don't want to wait until June of 2020. So that's that's the reason. If to to expand out just on the title alone, um, where is Babylon and who is sending the postcards? Is it is it you? Is it is yeah. it our culture? Who is who is sending Babylon it? And I'm sending some postcards. Exactly. The epigram for the book comes from the conclusion of First Peter, where the author of that epistle writes cryptically, "She who is in Babylon greets you." Well, what 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 is meant? Okay, this is this is an epistle written by Peter or someone associated with Peter in the first century who is writing in Rome and writing to uh, believers throughout the Roman Empire, especially the eastern provinces. In fact, they're named at the at the beginning of the book, the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, and the author of this epistle calls them exiles and strangers, foreigners. But they're not. He doesn't mean that they are. They are literally uh, expatriates now living in the Roman Empire. He means that because of their baptism, their identity has now been transformed, and the place that they were once fully at home in—that is the Roman Empire—now they they somewhat have to live as strangers and exiles in that land. And so she who she is the church who is in Babylon. Babylon is a cryptic way of talking about Rome, mm-hmm. Babylon being the iconic uh, image of empire in the Bible, Rome at that time being the contemporary expression of that. Well, I see my situation as similar. Uh, I am now a pastor inhabiting a superpower in the early decades of the 21st century, and I have some things to say about what it means to be faithful to Christ while also living as a citizen of a superpower. Mm-hmm. How, how do you live as a citizen of a superpower and a citizen of the kingdom of Christ simultaneously? This has always been a challenge for the people of God, whether we're talking about the people of God in the Old Testament, 
during the Babylonian exile, or whether we're talking about the early church in the first century in the Roman Empire or at various times throughout the history of Christendom up into our present moment. And I suppose just to, to put the ball fully in play at this moment, if I wanted to just try to sum up what I'm trying to do in this book in a sentence or two, I want my readers, who I presume are, are mostly Christian people, mostly probably in the United States, I want them to see America not as a kind of biblical Israel, but as a kind of biblical Babylon. And so how then what is what does fidelity to Christ in the midst of that look like? Ever since the conversation that I had with you then, to be honest, I haphazardly asked you that question of, and I forget how I asked you, but I asked you, is America the Babylon? And you said, oddly enough, I'm writing a book about that, and it, it will be fairly, uh, what's the word you're looking for? Not hyperbolic, but like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this man just said this. Perhaps people would regard it as pejorative elements, although I don't intend it to be that way. But I am, I am writing with deep passion and, and conviction in this book. What is the risk of America relating itself to being the Israel in, in the story of the Bible? Like, why are we not allowed to have that posture? Or why should not, not allowed? Why should we not have that posture? Well, because we're not. Um, because the kingdom of God gets radically redefined following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. So that we could say it this way, uh, God begins his program of redemption in earnest with Abraham, a man that he calls, who ends up forming a family through faith that becomes a clan, a tribe, a nation, and, and, and promises are made. And yet Israel doesn't seem to live up to the fullness of their calling for the most part. And when it looks like they really are going to fail in being what they're called to be, this light to the Gentiles, this, this uh, agent of salvific work of Yahweh in the earth, when it looks like they're going to fail, suddenly there emerges on the scene the true seed of Abraham, the mm -hmm. true son of David, who becomes, as it were, Israel in, in person and carries the whole project through to completion. And Israel completely assumed into Jesus. Jesus takes on the whole project of Israel so that Jesus becomes Israel before God. Of course, what happens is Israel in Christ is crucified, but raised again. But in resurrection, things have changed. Mm -hmm. So to put it in a sentence, I would say it like this. In Christ, the chosen people is the human race. And the holy land is the whole earth. And no longer is the temple defined geographically. In other words, the temple that is built to the true and living God is not made of stone on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And we're not waiting for a stone temple made with human hands and on, a, on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. No, uh, the, the true temple now, again, this also comes from Peter, is made of living stones. And it's not confined to one geographical location, but it's spread throughout the nations, throughout the world, where people gather together in the name of Jesus, break bread 
share a cup of wine, call out the body and blood of Jesus, and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, wherever that is happening, there is the temple. There is the kingdom of God. The great temptation, though, for the last 17 centuries, post-Constantine, has been to conflate particular nation-states, generally empires, with the kingdom of Christ. Now, I, now, Seth, I throw around this word empire, and I, I want people to know that I'm not doing that willy-nilly. I don't just, you know, mean to just, what does he mean by empire? What does he mean? Well, here's what I mean. Empires are rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history. Okay, I'm going to say that again. See, see, God loves nations with their ethnicity, their diversity, their language, the richness of culture, all of that. God loves that. What God does not love is when a particular nation begins to believe it has a divine right to rule other nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to its agenda. The reason God opposes that is because this is the very thing that God has promised to his only begotten son. Mm. God has promised to his son the right to rule the nations and a manifest destiny to shape history according to his agenda. So empires, by their very posture, position themselves to be opposed to God. And this is not a novel theme. This is not a minor theme in Scripture. Those, those that are raised in a church that is hosted by a, a superpower tend to have this screened out. But it's, it's absolutely a major theme in the Bible, quite literally from Genesis to Revelation. Very pronounced in Genesis, Exodus, several of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, especially Daniel. Uh, it's quite pronounced in the four Gospels and maybe reaches its, you know, its crescendo with the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which is a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire and thus, uh, by implication, all empires. Yeah. So here is my question now. So then, as an American uh, that grew up with no other context until... I became, uh, I, I guess, what, a fully functioning adult that, that decided I could finally make my own opinions regardless of whether or not Brian likes them or my neighbor likes them or anyone else likes them. How have we gotten it so twisted? I, I can't think that the church has always been as bad at it, although if it's that many centuries, maybe we have been. But how, how have we gotten it so blatantly twisted that uh, Americans are afraid to disengage from empire for fear of love of political power? And then how do, we, how do we disengage that from the pulpit? And how do we disengage that from, I don't want to pick on Fox News, but Fox News or Pat Robertson, or how do I, there's just so much in, entanglement, to, to use a, a, a bad metaphor, of the two that I feel like the church doesn't even realize that it is involved in empire building or maintaining. Yeah, and that is, you know, that's what I take 200 and some pages to answer. <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, really quite seriously. Let me, let, me, let me just approach this as, as methodically and carefully as I can. To begin with, this has not always been a problem for the church. It is quite honestly, and I think nearly all church historians that aren't actually in the employ of some sort of you know, imperial agenda would agree with me that there was a profound, profound shift following the Emperor Constantine in the early fourth century. Uh, so what you had was you had the you had a church whose primary gospel was a gospel of the kingdom, and its primary announcement was Jesus is Lord. 
Now, if I say Jesus is Lord today, um, it sounds almost entirely religious Mm -hmm. because the term Lord is never used other than in a religious context. So if I say Jesus is Lord, people hear me making some sort of, you know, spiritual aphorism. Uh, This is nothing like what it originally meant. For one thing, the term Lord was an imperial title granted to the Caesar by the Senate, along with, and these were formal titles, that the Senate in Rome granted to the Caesar and would be placed on coins that would have the emperor's image with these particular titles, and it was the means of mass communication of the day because, of course, the coins circulated throughout the empire. Other titles for the emperor were Prince of Peace, Savior of the World, uh, Son of God, King of Kings. So when Christians began to use these terms to speak of Jesus of Nazareth, they were in one sense, employing terms that are that were already in circulation for the Roman emperor. So when a first, second, third century Christian says Jesus is Lord, lurking right there in that very political statement was the implication, and Caesar is not. Mm-hmm. Because the, the first church, the pre-Constantine church, saw the kingdom of Christ as a present reality. Yes, they did believe in a culmination, They believe in an eschaton. They believe in a parousia, that is, in a period of Christ that would sum up all things at the end of the age. But neither would you see them just kicking the can down the road saying, well, someday the kingdom of God will come. Oh, no. They believe the kingdom of God had arrived in the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's how they understood the ascension. The ascension was not, you know, Jesus becoming the first astronaut. It wasn't some sort of doctrine to explain the apparent absence of Christ. Rather, by ascension, we mean promotion. We mean mean that, that Jesus Christ has been promoted to the Oval Office of the universe, that he is at the right hand of God, and all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him now. And so the church lived as citizens of a very present and very real kingdom. But this often involved persecution not because of their religious claims, but because their claims about Christ had political implications. Mm -hmm. The Roman Empire was was really pretty uh, tolerant about religion. They didn't try to convert the whole world to some single religion. They let you hold on to your religion, Um, but they wanted you to confess that Caesar is Lord. The early Christians were not persecuted for religious reasons, but for political reasons. In fact, the early Christians, by the by, the Roman persecutors or the Roman society that was opposed to the Christian faith, called the early Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the gods of the empire. Mm-hmm. So this is how it is for three centuries. And then you have the phenomenon of a – well, the story is that, that general – Constantine is about to have a decisive battle. He's not the emperor yet. He, he's contending for the throne. The winner of this battle is going to become emperor because there's a civil war going on in Rome. And as Constantine, as the story comes to us, uh, on the eve of battle, Constantine sees a Christian sign in the heavens, presumably a cross. Uh, with these words, in this sign you shall conquer. Of course, conquer is a, a euphemism for kill. 
So in this sign, you shall go and wage war and kill. And as the story is told, it may be somewhat legendary, but there must be something lurking behind it. Um, Christian symbols are placed on the weapons of war of Constantine's army, and he prevails in the battle for the Milvian Bridge in quick succession, becomes emperor, and then very soon issues the Edict of Milan, which establishes Christianity as the favored religion, and now it's on the fast track to becoming the state religion. Um, the church made a mistake going along with that. I have no problem with saying that, but i also say I think it was an inevitable mistake. I don't know how the church avoided this mistake, mm -hmm. but what happened was is now suddenly, instead of the kingdom of Christ being fully a rival empire to all of the other empires of the world, uh, you're trying to conflate two of them into one thing. The problem is, is now Jesus is a little bit out of a job because we're really going to let Caesar be Lord. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, he gets demoted to secretary of afterlife affairs, and it becomes the job of Jesus to get parts of people into heaven, their souls into heaven when they die. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to let Caesar run the world. Uh, you know, interestingly, this, this first so-called Christian emperor, Constantine, he he appeared to understand that there was a conflict, because contrary to any kind of Christian practice of the time, uh, Constantine delayed his baptism until his deathbed, because I think Constantine himself understood that you really can't uh, claim to be a follower of Jesus and be the emperor of a violent superpower empire waging war simultaneously. Uh, and in fact, Constantine, even after giving favored status to Christians and associating with Christians and maybe trying to call himself a Christian, although he wasn't yet baptized, even during that time, he ordered the execution of family members, you know, that he thought were maybe a rival to the throne. And so it's, it's, it's pretty sordid in its background. And this has been repeated throughout history, whether we're talking about the Byzantine Empire, the Russian Empire, the British Empire, Spanish, Portuguese, etc. And now America is having its flirtation with it. So it's nothing new, but that doesn't mean it's not diabolical and poses real challenges to Christians that live in the midst of it. Of course, from the perspective of history, it's relatively easy to bring the critique. The tricky part is actually to bring the critique while you are living in heaven. is set up, but I would assume each chapter is a different postcard from Babylon, but that's just the way that I'm seeing it in my head, and if that's wrong, that's fine. That's the way I see it in my head. Something like that, yeah. Um, and so, are those postcards addressing individual flirtations, or what do some of those flirtations look like in 2018 or 2019? I start the book with a chapter called Conversion, Catacombs, and a Counterculture. That's chapter one. Conversion, Catacombs, 
and a counterculture. In that chapter, I tell my own conversion story as a 15-year-old Led Zeppelin freak who in the 70s overnight went to be in the high school Jesus freak, and suddenly I was right in the midst of what was known as the Jesus movement of the 1970s, the spiritual revival among counterculture, counterculture youth in beginning in America, but really went throughout much of the Western world. That became a significant enough, you know, spiritual movement that it was on the cover of Time magazine and, you know, reported widely. I, I think it's safe to say that hundreds of thousands of young people came to faith in Christ during this time, and I was I was a part of that. And I talked about what a what a counterculture sense it had. We 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 didn't see ourselves as fitting. We were pretty apolitical. I mean, we certainly wouldn't have seen ourselves as Republicans or Democrats. That would have appeared ludicrous to us. We did have strong anti-war sentiment, not because we got it from the Beatles, but because we got it from the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. And the epicenter of the catacombs where I'm from here in St. Joseph, Missouri, was called the catacombs. And eventually, by the time I was 17, I was leading that ministry which was kind of a music venue for the Jesus music scene, but it's what turned into Word of Life Church. Um, and we called it the catacombs partly because our our meeting place, our first meeting place, was in the basement of a dive bar on 3rd Street here in St. Joseph. So it was subterranean, it was underground, it was kind of dank and dark, and so catacombs. But also we were riffing on the idea of we sensed some sort of connection with the Christianity of the catacombs in Rome. Remember the, the you know, you, you couldn't you couldn't bury the dead in Roman culture. You burned them, but Christians adopting the Jewish practice said, no, as a sign of our hope of resurrection, we bury our dead. But they had to create these underground labyrinths to do their, you know, burying of the dead, which they, you know, eventually buried, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. It's, you know, I've toured them several times when I've been in Rome. It's quite fascinating. But it also became sites at times of Eucharistic worship. And uh, so catacombs is a nice, uh, what I want to say, metaphor symbol for early Christianity. And so we were kind of trying to, we were riffing on the two that, yeah, we're meeting underground, but we're also an underground movement. Mm -hmm. We saw ourselves as subversive. We saw ourselves as a challenge to just uh, easygoing American Christianity uh, as usual. We saw ourselves challenging that. But I end that whole section with, but we were so very young. And then I go into talking about how over the over a period of about a decade, we found ourselves moving from our very edgy counterculture, you know, believing the Sermon on the Mount should be taken seriously to being a part, really, of what became the religious right mm -hmm. and uh, serving the interests of – well, what happened was is that is that evangelical Christianity, instead of being this energetic witness to the possibility of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, in effect becomes the religious wing of the Republican Party. Yeah. And I see that as a tremendous catastrophe, disaster – failure. And so that's where I start with on the book. And then I talk about, you know, various aspects of what I think we ought to do about it. I think we have to see the kingdom. I think the main thing, though, is can we see ourselves as not a kind of biblical Israel, but a kind of biblical Babylon, talking about the United States? And then, okay, so how do how did Christians live in the time of Daniel 
in the Persian Empire? How did Christians live in the first century in the time of the apostles in the Roman Empire? And I think that gives us clues. That gives us some some direction. Um, you know, the, the book of Daniel is very interesting. Uh, most Bible scholars say it's written about 150 years before Christ. Most academic Bible scholars all say that. But it's set in an earlier time. The reason this is done is because the present crisis, 150 B.C., was a vicious persecution by the Seleucid Empire on the Jewish population. There was a forced Hellenization program that was being um, employed by Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he wanted to just force uh, all Jews to become Hellenists, Greeks, adopt Greek ways. And, and, and so they're resisting that. And there's a lot of persecution going on. And so this book is written at that time. But to keep it a little safe, they set it in a, you know, what would it be, 200 years earlier or so, 250 years earlier in the time of um, the Jews under the under Persian rule. And if you look at the book of Daniel, really what it's about is it's it's how to instruct particularly young men to get along in the empire, have jobs, survive, you know, be a productive part of society, but don't compromise your Jewish faith. Mm -hmm. And it's 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 tricky. You know, it's it's a dance. It's it's not always easy. Uh, on it, it, it would be easy to capitulate. It would be easy to get killed. Mm -hmm. uh, the book of Daniel says, well, let's try to find this narrow tightrope and try not to get killed. But but, you know, if you must die, you might have to go to the lion's den. You might have to go to the fiery furnace. Of course, in both of those stories, uh, they survive. Uh, but there's always the risk of martyrdom. But you don't go necessarily inviting it. To the extent that you can, you seek the well-being of the city, the empire, the nation, where God has caused you to live as exiles. But that's what I want American Christians to see themselves as doing, not see themselves as serving, uh, trying to further the American agenda in the world, but trying to further the kingdom of Christ and understand there's a radical difference between the two. Two questions on that. I feel like as I check the pulse of the internet or Facebook or anything else or anything that you read, a lot of the vocalist, most vocal, there it is, the most vocal voices ended up being people that are young, younger than me all the way up to my age. And there are a few that are older than me that are extremely vocal and that use their platform to do that. And obviously you're one of those, but I find that many youth don't have uh, the tools or the knowledge to actually engage in anything outside of just words of, we should not do this. We should, yeah. you know, we should help the people with the caravan or we should not do this, or we should do something for the people in Yemen um, without any actual uh, backbone to stand on outside of words that aren't theirs. And so what would be one or two things that young people that feel called to this kind of subversiveness, and I wonder if there's a part of being young that, helps us posture ourselves to that, but I'm not a psychologist. But what would be one or two things that that you would advise people to, to equip themselves to both not become a martyr in America, but also use their voice wisely to affect you actual change? Read postcards from Babylon. <laughs> do what? Because that's that's why I'm writing that book. Well I mean and I <laughs> and I really do have probably a younger audience in mind. Mm -hmm. I mean 
I don't mind speaking to my peers. I'm 59. I'll be 60 in March. Uh, I've seen a lot of my, and it saddens me. My goodness, it saddens me. I see, and I was one of the younger ones. Really, I'm, I'm about as young as you can be and really have been a part of the Jesus movement. Uh, a lot of the people that were there with me are five to 10 years older than me. So they're nearing 70. They're in their 60s now. Um, but I see them now, and, I, and I, some of them, I just want to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and say, well, what happened to that radical Jesus freak? Mm-hmm. What happened to that person that that uh, really saw yourself as countercultural? You know, here you are in your 60s, and now you just a, the best you can do is be a conservative Republican? I mean, please. I mean, ultimately, I consider myself both, both. Uh, theologically and maybe somewhat politically, I consider myself a true conservative, not a, not a faux conservative, not this thing that has been foisted upon us, this populism, this nationalism. I'm not that. But uh, I really do see the value in ancient traditions and being preserved, and I'm not too quick to jettison them. I see myself as a true conservative, but also as a radical. When, when people call me a liberal, they'll say, you're a liberal. I say, I'm not a liberal. I'm a revolutionary Christian. Um, because neither left nor right on the political spectrum is going to be interested in what it is I'm advocating for. And that is that we truly live as citizens of the kingdom of Christ here and now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that whether the rest of the world does or doesn't, that we embody the reign of Christ here and now. Now, I do see among some of the, if you want to use the word, progressive, younger Christian movement. Here's what I, here's what I see that I would critique. Uh, and I don't do that this much in the book because it's not, I don't, maybe it didn't quite fit, but it may be what I write next. Uh, I see them having a, a zeal for justice, okay, uh, but being rather suspicious or, if nothing else, disinterested in worshiping Jesus and just, you know, doing church and worshiping Jesus. Well, to which I want to say there are two commands, two great commands. This comes to us from the Old Testament, but it's confirmed by Jesus. But there are two great commandments. The first is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, worship followed by justice. I see a lot of young people, maybe progressive leaning in the church or outside the church, that would that would call themselves Christian or Christianish or they like Jesus or something like that, who are very interested in doing justice, not so interested in the practices of worship. I'm suspicious of that whole project. I think what they're doing, maybe unwittingly, is borrowing on Christian capital that eventually they're going to run out of. Yeah, I'll tell you a story. I was hiking in the mountains in the winter a few years ago, and winter hikes are very, very different. This is, you know, up above tree lines, snowshoes, all that. And part of the challenge of winter hiking is is just route finding. You don't want to get lost, and because um, there's no trails or anything. And I came across another hiker, and so we're hiking. It was good, you know. I felt a little security by having a hiking partner. And so we hiked for about a half an hour. We're having a lovely time talking mountains and things like that. And then he asked the dreaded question, what do you do? (laughs) I know know many pastors hate that question. Yeah, And I say, well, you know, and I thought about saying I'm an author, which is true enough, but 
it's still disingenuous. So I, I decided I'd tell the truth. And I said, I'm a pastor. Well, you know, it all went downhill pretty quick from there. He, he was a disgruntled former Christian. That's, you know, he would describe himself as that. And, and then he said, I'm going to tell you what you Christians should do. I said, well, please do. Uh, he said, you should do good works, but you shouldn't worship Jesus. You should, you should do good works. You should help the poor. You should help the weak. You should advocate for justice. But you shouldn't spend all this time, you know, getting in worshiping Jesus. I said, well, hold on here a minute, pal. Uh, I think you have overestimated me. I think you've made the assumption that I'm just really, by nature, a generous, caring, giving guy. I don't know. I think left to my own devices, I'm a pretty selfish son of a gun. If if I'm going to become the kind of person that genuinely does care about social justice issues, uh, it's because I worship Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so what I what I what I what I would say to progressives on the left side of the spectrum within Christianity is don't lose worshiping Jesus as the the necessary act of faith that forms us into the kind of people that can do justice. Um, so I remember, you know, if you, if you think about like the hippie movement, so you had these hippies, you know, and they, they don't like nuclear weapons. I don't either. And so they, they go to the nuclear weapons plant and they protest and, and they, 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 they do this for about six months and then they burn out and then they became insurance salesmen and just went on with their life. Uh, but I know Benedictine nuns who are now in their 80s who were protesting at nuclear weapons factories in the 60s, and they're still doing it. Why? Because they had the practices of prayer, worship, contemplation, formation that allowed them and enabled them to have a radical stance within society for a lifetime. Yeah. Well, I want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be a chaplain to the empire. I want to be a prophetic voice. And I think that's not just me saying I want Brian Zahn to be that. I think that is the appropriate posture of the church within a superpower is to be a prophetic challenge, not a chaplain saying, yes, we're going to bless your wars. We're going to bless your greed. We're going to bless your economy. Leave that to the priests of Mars and Mammon. Uh, the followers of Christ are to be something radically other. Yeah, well, and I know the 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 more often and and no, that's the wrong way to say it. The more at open, no, the more open and at ease I am in my church community, the more actual fuel I have to do things like this. Because this actually doing interviews at the frequency that I try to do them at. And to learn what I need to learn to try to be prepared to talk about it is exhausting. And it's also exhausting to constantly protest if all you ever do is expend fuel without any contemplation or fellowship or uh, maybe we'll use a biblical metaphor. If I don't lay that cross down for a second, worship, recharge, re-engage, pick it back up, and let's let's go a little further down the road. As you've gotten out of the country over the past year, and and I have to assume you've discussed the themes of America uh, plur- plurality, America, nationalism, and America, whatever you want to call it, not patriotism, America worship, worship, worshiping itself. How do these concepts come off as you're talking with people in communities that aren't American? As you're as you're on the roads and you know doing the uh, the Camino in Santiago, as as you're talking with other people outside of our frame of reference, how do they view America? Do they view us as as a Babylonian type? 
Roman type oppressive empire? Do they care? Do they think we'll even be able to change? No, they care. Let me answer this in a bunch of different ways. Let me first say America is four things. America is a nation, a culture, an empire, and a religion. As a nation and a culture, America is a mixed bag. It's good and bad. There are things I can critique, but there's a lot that I can admire. There's a lot that I can genuinely be proud of. Uh, in being an American as a nation and culture. When you step into the realm of superpower or empire, uh, I've already addressed that the problem with empire is their claim to have divine right to rule nations, manifest mm-hmm. destiny to shape history, is what God has promised to Jesus. And then finally you take the last step into Americanism, which is a kind of religion which the adherents of uh, are loathe to admit because it creates far too much cognitive dissonance. So they try to conflate Christianity and Americanism into a single entity, but you can't do it. It's blasphemous. It's idolatrous. It's not a new problem. It's been around for 17 centuries, but it's a real problem. So America's four things. So it's hard. You know, it's unwieldy. It's hard to talk about America just as simple as that. What do people think about America? And you're right. Last couple of years, I've spent probably about a third of each year, you know, in New Zealand, Australia, Portugal, Spain, Germany, France, England, Middle East and other places. Mm -hmm. So you you understand that there has been post-World War II, you know, for 60 years, 70 years, you know, there's been a deep admiration of America in the rest of the world. And that though has come under pressure. There are three things that always come up. Um, and and here I'm just asked, acting as a reporter. I don't know, I don't know what, what our listenership consists of. And I don't know if people are gonna like this, but at this moment, I'm gonna try to step out of being a preacher and just, I'm gonna report to you what comes up. Um, Here's what the, you know, there's still an admiration for America, but there's two things they don't get about America. They, there's two things they don't get. They don't understand our obsession with guns, and they don't understand why we don't have the same kind of health care that the rest of the advanced, uh, prosperous world has. They, they simply, I wouldn't say they're, they're not raging against it. They just, it, they find it is just as odd to them. You know, why is America this way? They'll ask me that, and it's hard for me to answer. Of course, the other thing that comes up, you know, it's there's guns and health care. But now what comes up is, is, of course, Trump. And um, America is divided about Trump. We all know that. That's not that's not me telling anything new. Uh, outside of America, there isn't that much of a division unless you're in Russia or Israel, which are nations I've been to a lot. With the exception of Russia and Israel, I would say that Donald Trump is wildly unpopular outside of those two nations. And make of that what you will. So that's that's how we're seeing. Now, since a lot, not all by any means, by no means, but a lot of my travels are in, you know, I find myself in some version of evangelical church, preaching, teaching, seminaries, speaking, teaching, whatever I do. There is also the issue of they just don't understand. I mean, if I'm if I'm with Hillsong, let's say in London or Sydney, Australia, 
These are people that are really conservative, evangelical-type Christians that with American evangelicals would be on the same page theologically, ecclesiology, that sort of stuff. They're pretty much on the same page. But then you then you come to politics and Trump. And they just like, why, why are American evangelicals on board with this guy? Mm-hmm. Again, here I'm trying to report a little bit. Now I have, I have maybe some, I have my opinions and you can guess what they are, but but so I'm not I'm not talking about, you know, some sort of progressive far left uh, mainline way out there Presbyterian, you know, USA. I'm talking about evangelicals outside the United States. Look at their evangelical brethren within the United States and cannot for the life of them understand why their American brethren are on board with someone they see as completely incompatible with anything that would reflect Christian values. Those are the things that come up, and they come up all the time. They come up more than I want them to come up. They come up, and I get tired of talking about it, but I try to be polite and talk about it, but it comes up all the time. Yeah, well, so this, I'm, I want to make this my final question. If we can't pivot away from our love of empire— Will it destroy the church in such a way that my grandkids don't have an easy way to worship? Or, yes. Uh, I don't like that. I, I don't, and I don't like that you so easily can say yes without any nuance. I say, I say, no, I say it easily. I say it passionately. There's a difference. I don't say it glibly. I pray every day. God help me to help make Christianity possible for my grandchildren and their generation. Like I said, I'm 59 years old. I have seven grandchildren, all eight and under. So eight years ago, zero grandchildren, and then there was a tsunami of grandchildren. <laughs> now it's young dude. A tsunami of grandchildren. Yeah. I can picture in my head just waves of children, and you're just they, scooping they out a few and keeping they, those. They, they're divided between our two older sons, who one has four children, one has three. They live across the street from each other, five minutes from where I'm sitting here right now. So oh my. You know, they're here. And I'm around them, Jude, Finn, Evie, Liam, Mercy, Hope, and Pax. And so I, this, this really, in fact, the book is dedicated to those seven grandchildren. Postcards from Babylon is dedicated to them. And um, it's part of my attempt to help make Christianity possible for them and their generation. But if that's going to happen, then Christianity is going to have to be willing to be a subculture and a counterculture. I mean, I subtitled the book The Church in American Exile, which is – I like that one. I, that should be the subtitle. It is. But the alternative – but it was clunky, and I didn't want to go with it. But the other option was making Christianity countercultural again. Mm. If Christianity is going to be possible – for our children and grandchildren, it's going to have to be willing to be countercultural. So the banker part of my brain, how do we pay for that? Because I feel like the moment that America tries to do that, the churches will explode because the government will threaten to take away tax exemption. The government, like as that voting block goes away to reinforce their power, they will. I don't think that the church is is man enough to to give away that golden carrot. Probably, uh, probably not. What you're going to end up with 
it is probably inevitable. We're going to be in a situation much like Western Europe within a generation or two, where mm-hmm. the church is definitely present. I can take you to any of these countries. I mean, I go to them all the time. It seems I'm in a phase over the last 10 years where I'm a lot in France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Italy, England. I'm just back from several of those countries just like a week ago. Um, so I know where to find the Christians there. They're zealous. They're on fire. But they are a tiny minority. Mm-hmm. And that's just the reality of it. And I think it's going to be the reality here. Um, I mean, Christendom is over. It, Europe knows it. America, North America doesn't know it yet because presently we're still um, tangled up in being the de facto state church. Uh, one chapter in, in the book is entitled Tangled Up in Red, White, and Blue, which if you know my, you know, that's a riff on Dylan's Tangled mm-hmm. Up in Blue. It's Tangled Up in Red, White, and Blue. You see what I'm doing there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is only going to last at most another generation, at most. By, and by a generation, I don't mean 40 years. I mean 15, 20. Uh, and, and because that is being sustained by people who the next stop is the grave. And when that generation is done, then the money's gone anyway. Right. Uh, and so the church is going to have to reinvent itself. And I think either it becomes it's willing to be subversive underground counterculture or it or or those that aren't willing to do it, it's just going to cease to exist it just won't exist all right so how do you do well then that's why you read the book of daniel it doesn't mean you can't uh work for uh darius or nebuchadnezzar you can but there's certain lines you're not going to cross. There's right. certain jobs you're not going to do. There's going to be times when they say, all right, everybody, we're going to play some music and everybody's going to bow down to this big old statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Amen are going to say, hey, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. And uh, anyway, so a good part of the book is about that. So, Well, I hope for those listening, um, and for myself as well, um, that you go out and get the book. I know I am going to go out and get the book because uh, I like the way that you write. I like the way that I'm able to understand it. So often I read a theology book and I have to read it again to figure out what I didn't understand the first time. And so I appreciate that in the way that you write. Where would you direct people to to either engage with you, engage with this type of contextual uh, license of religion? Where would you direct them to? You know, I'm easy to find because there aren't a lot of Brian Zons. In fact, I think I'm the only one. Uh, so you can find me, you know, I have a blog site. If you just Google Brian Zon, you'll find my blog site. You'll find Word of Life Church. You'll find Twitter, Instagram. I do some stuff on Facebook, although Facebook scares me, but I still do some. <laughs> it's, and it's, so it's a monster you have to Google feed. Google Brian Zon, and I'm not hard. It's not like my name is Tom Jones, so... That's an advantage with an unusual name that you can find me pretty easy. Beautiful. Well, Brian, thank you again for coming back on. Pleasure as always. Thank you. Oh, the precious blood that made a way
what do we do realizing or recognizing that America is a superpower? America is an empire. America has dropped nuclear bombs. America has the means to help the planet in a way that you or I personally can't. What does it mean that we can do all that and we don't? What does it mean that we can do all of that and we treat people often as as the Pharisees would treat the Samaritan? What does it mean that we haven't progressed, really, when we think about it, that we haven't? Wrestle with this. What are you called to do? To be that voice of subversion that is not antithetical to truth and is not hypocritical or as best as we can try not to be, that calls light into the darkness, that embraces God and Jesus in a way that people see him through us because of the way that we treat others. What does it mean when we act that way as opposed to the way that we tend to act? I don't know the answer to that. I like to think that I do it well, but I am fully aware that I probably don't. I would encourage you and implore you to support this show. Patreon.com slash can I say this at church for a dollar a month. You can be one of the precious few that are helping to create this show into something more. I have so many plans for the show. All of those require uh, financial backing and founding to be able to do it. I'm so excited for them to happen. It won't happen without you. And so if you are enjoying this community, getting anything out of the conversations, consider throwing the cost of 2.7 Starbucks coffees in support of the show. Any and everything that you can do can can really go further than you would expect it to. Please remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. That is what helps the internet find out that this show exists organically to those that don't know you, that you haven't referred them to. Here are just a few of the recent ones that have really cracked me up and some that have really spoken to me. Uh, so Nathan says, most Christian podcasts are garbage and this one isn't. <laughs> so thank you, Nathan. I will talk with you next week. Be blessed, everybody. Today's music is provided with permission from singer-songwriter Andrew Word. His songs are acoustic-driven meditations of loss and redemption. I am unable to recommend enough his Full of Light EP. That's available now everywhere that good music is, is, is available, as well as the tracks from today's episode are with every other track on the Spotify playlist for Can I Say This at Church.